Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I am your host, Tatiana Kazesnov. This week, we're going to go down a little bit of a different route, which is I don't have a guest with me. You have to suffer or enjoy the, my voice for the next few minutes. The reason why I decided to do this was because we're now at episode 30, which struck me as being quite a landmark. And the podcast has been going now for six months. And before we went on to any new and exciting subjects, of which there are plenty of good ones coming up, I wanted to take the time to sort of get back and review and, and wonder whether or not I'd sort of stuck to the original course. When I started the podcast six months ago, and you can check up on that by going back and listening to the introduction if you choose, I really was very focused on the idea of bringing forward new information and old information on healthcare, on mind, body, spirit, medicine, on understanding that in order to have optimal health, you really need to look at all of these aspects. And in that sense, I have to admit, my thoughts have not changed in the slightest. However, I would say that by talking to the most amazing guests that I've had in the past, over the past six months, that I've been forced to think about some things and some areas that perhaps I hadn't focused quite so much attention on before. And slowly, slowly, I'm starting to come up with what I call my unified theory of health, in the same way as the physicists are trying to come up with the unified theory of physics. Now, not that I would ever, ever say that I'm capable of providing a unified theory of health, but my guests perhaps are. So let's look back and, and see what, what's been coming up over the pre last episodes and previous episodes and, and what information we can garner from that and use from that. Now, if we look at mind, we've had a lot of interviews with therapists, some psychotherapists, some hypnotherapists, um, looking at, at the importance of the mind. And there I have to admit that my thoughts have changed very little from my original standpoint six months ago, that the mind is a really, really crucial component, if not perhaps the most crucial component to living well and living healthily and living healthy for longer. If your mind is not in the right place, if your mind isn't optimized for your well-being, then it strikes me that you can go along and do as many things as you like to look after your body, and you can do as many things as you like to make sure that you have um, good interaction with other people, that you have fun time, um, that you don't get overstressed, so on and so forth, all of the things you're supposed to do. But if your mind is not in the right place, that still may be the biggest hurdle to health and well-being. So many people we know suffer from trauma. Sometimes the trauma doesn't even have to be that extensive. Sometimes it can just be the patterns that were given to us as children that set us on a road and a set of beliefs which actually long-term end up being counterproductive to our well-being, whether they express themselves in a physical way or in an emotional way or in a psychological way. 
We know that the number of people suffering from anxiety and depression is going through the roof. We also know that the number of people suffering from chronic disease is going through the roof. And every single person I speak to says, this is the reason why. And this is the reason why this is happening. And I'm beginning to think it's not just the one reason, but it's all of those reasons. An example of which, for example, um, is when we spoke to Dr. Mike Merzenich, the uh, father of brain plasticity, he talked a lot about the fact that if you keep your brain physically active and agile and learning and plastic and engaged and you engage in life and you have a very positive outlook and a positive energy, that this all encourages neuroplasticity and everything that encourages neuroplasticity encourages long-term brain health. And it means that you have a much, much better chance of not getting serious neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and so many other diseases that are associated with that. And also doing these kind of exercises that encourage neuroplasticity can actually encourage your brain to heal and perhaps reverse some of these conditions. And he threw just into the wind and based on his research, the number that you could reduce, for example, Alzheimer's by 50%. And then you go off and you talk to somebody who is a functional medicine doctor and you talk to somebody who's into diet or into exercise and they'll say, well, you know, if you do this and you follow this diet and you follow this protocol and this regime, we can get results of sort of like up to like 50%. And there's a part of me that just thinks, well, wait a minute, is that the same 50% as the other guy was talking about? Is it the other 50%? In other words, now do we have a hundred if we put these two things together? And that's really kind of where I'm beginning to be at, is understanding that you have to have a healthy mind, a healthy body, and a healthy spirit if you want to have optimal health. And these days you have to work at it. It's not something that just comes from nowhere. We live in lifestyles and in environments which go out of their way to be unhealthy whether it's a bombardment with information and technology, whether it's pollutants from the environment and the way that we live, whether it's a lack of exposure to sunlight and fresh air and exercise and just getting out into nature, whether it's the stress of uh, demanding lives and demanding jobs. There's a million reasons for why these days we all live such terribly unhealthy lives and To be honest, to counteract that is not a passive process. I truly believe that wellness is actually the state of being that we should be. It's not disease, it's wellness, it's well-being. And that we not only should survive, but we should actually be able to thrive and also into old age. But you cannot do this passively anymore. It's really an active process because so much of what we are surrounded by is going out of its way to undermine your well-being and your health. And that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast, because I also really want to make you and everybody understand the lessons that I've learned and am still learning 
which is that you have a choice, that you can empower yourself to take control of your own healthcare. Your healthcare does not belong in the hands of your doctor. Your doctor is most definitely a very trusted person that you should consult in order to help you on your journey to wellness. But you are the person who's involved here and your health care is your responsibility and it's your choice. Now, responsibility is a huge word because there's a lot of people who I understand don't want to take responsibility. They're quite happy to hand over the responsibility for their health care to their doctors, the responsibility for their education to teachers and universities, their responsibility for their lives to governments and organizations that tell them what they're supposed to do and what they're supposed to be. But I think most of us, or certainly a lot of us, don't really feel very comfortable as a pawn on a chessboard. We feel so much better when we feel like we're in control of our own lives, in control of our destiny. And that kind of control and empowerment starts at home with the decision to just take it. And as far as healthcare is concerned, empowering yourself means educating yourself. Because as I said right in my very initial introduction, there isn't and there never will be a one-size-fits-all. We are hugely complex beings and we are hugely complex organisms. And there's never going to be a one way to fix everything. The very fact that every human being looks different to every other human being is amazing. So if we can have that degree of complexity and diversity just in the way we look, there's a lot of complexity and diversity in how we can optimize our health. Of course, there's a lot of basic rules that we all follow. We're all human beings and we all share similar psychologies and similar physiologies. However, there is a huge amount of variation. So first and foremost, the lessons I've learned through the podcast and talking to a lot of the therapists that we've spoken to and a lot of the people who've had very, very traumatic events and experiences in their lives is that your mental state is really massively crucial to your health care and your welfare. And I would highly encourage anybody out there who feels that there is a block, that they recognize that there's a problem. And I think innately we all recognize when we're striving to move forward, either in our lives, in our success, in our professional, private lives, whatever, but also in our healthcare journeys, we often recognize when there's a stumbling block that we can't get past. And I would really encourage everybody to go and get a therapist and find a therapist and just help yourself Put your mind and your psyche into an optimal place for healing and well-being. There's a million ways you can do that. And I hope that some of the people that we've brought you on London Heal will give you a window into that. And certainly we can help you find other resources that we may not yet have covered. In fact, that's my goal of London Heal in the long term is to have this as your one stop shop for resources so that you can look and see what might be an option for you and what's the right way for you to go. 
When we talk about our bodies, we talk about looking after the physical health of our body with exercise. Well, again, you know, this is a one, not a one size fits all. So much data is conflicting, but the most important take home message is that some form of movement and exercise is vital to your well-being. In fact, I recently, just this week, issued a Facebook post which showed that a new study had demonstrated that a lack of exercise is worse for you than smoking, diabetes, and heart disease. And that is saying something. And as somebody who is a total exercise phobic, I really don't like traditional standard forms of exercise. I know this is a tough one for very many of us, but it's really very important. And it doesn't have to be really the whole, you know, going in for CrossFit or whatever, if that's not your thing, but something is always better than nothing. In fact, I've now gotten into the habit of setting an alarm on my computer, which rings every 20 minutes, which forces me to get up and move around. And what I actively try and do is run up and down the stairs once or twice or do some lunges or knee bends, stretch, move. You know, I learned that trick, by the way, from my cat. And if any of you are a cat owner, you'll notice that when your little beastie is lying down and sleeping and whiling away the hours, it instinctively knows to get up, stretch, move, adjust, turn around and sit back down in a different position. Whereas we can quite comfortably spend eight hours in a chair without moving other than the occasional trips to the bathroom and to get a new cup of coffee. So please get up and move, even if it's only a little. If you can't manage those 10,000 steps every day or you don't want to go to the gym, think about things that you enjoy doing that are involved with movement. Get yourself scheduled up with a group of friends. Meet somebody maybe once or twice a week to go for a walk with. Try and get out and walk a little bit in the fresh air. Get out into nature. It's so rewarding. It's not just good for your body, but it's brilliantly good for your mind. Clears out all those cobwebs. Or join some kind of club, be it yoga or whatever. It doesn't have to be high-level, high-intensity exercise just movement and movement in the way that our bodies were designed to move. So stretching, crawling, um, those kind of things, getting tired, getting out of breath occasionally, dropping a few beads of sweat. Nobody likes to sweat these days. It's, you know, I understand that it's not particularly socially acceptable. However, Getting out of breath and sweating is actually what your body was supposed to be able to put up with. In fact, it really enjoys it. So give it a go every now and again, even if it is just running up and down the stairs in the privacy of your own home. And of course, all the sensible suggestions like, you know, take the stairs instead of the lift or the escalator, that sort of thing. Get off the bus a stop early or the train a stop early or park a bit further away so that you can walk a little bit. It's really not difficult to incorporate just a little bit of movement into your everyday diet. Oh, a minefield. Diet is a huge minefield. And we've only really just started to explore that on London Hill. We talked to Professor Walter Longo, who talks about his fasting mimicking diet and also about the longevity diet. 
And I totally agree with him that if you look at all of his four pillars of, of health and well-being and you take all of the different aspects into account from people in the longevity zones, the so-called blue zones, to epidemiological data, historical data, as well as observational data and randomized clinical trials, you do start to get a sort of a bit of a take-home message of what is sort of the ideal type of diet. However, again, you know, this is never going to be a one-size-fits-all. And whilst I strongly believe that his recommendations are probably very sound advice for the majority of us, I think in some cases, perhaps when we look at people who are struggling with things like diabetes or epilepsy, that perhaps going down the road of a low-carbohydrate diet to treat diabetes is clearly something which is extremely effective and achievable and also has a high degree of compliance. These kind of diets, once you sort of adjust a little about the way that you eat and you think, are actually not so difficult to stick to. When we talked to Emma from Matthew's Friends about the ketogenic diet, looking at the effects of that on epilepsy, I think it's really clear that this diet is absolutely something which is massively effective in this area of disease and something that we can't ignore. And maybe even for those people who choose to diet and lose weight, going on a ketogenic diet also seems to be very, very effective. However, as Emma pointed out, these diets are very extreme. And perhaps certainly if you have any kind of medical condition should not be something that you think about pursuing without getting the advice of a medical or a health professional beforehand. But again, perhaps they really are suitable, even if it's only for an intermittent period of time. I mean, let's face it, if you're somebody who's struggling with diabetes, it's a fair argument to say that eating a high-fat diet and saturated fat or whatever perhaps may not be good for your heart disease, but it's certainly going to be a whole lot better than having type 2 diabetes. And perhaps, who knows, when we get back to the stage of being able to reverse this disease, of being able to have people back in normal healthy parameters when you just look at their blood values, perhaps after a certain period of time, their intolerance to insulin and glucose will actually adjust and they can go back to eating a better adjusted, higher carbohydrate diet. And even Dr. Longo, he talks about complex carbohydrates. You know, I actually have a very hard time with this conversation about macronutrients because I don't really think that whether it's protein, fat or um, carbohydrate is really the issue. I think we've really become to understand that calories are not just calories and it's no longer a question of calories in and calories out, but where those calories come from. And I think the one thing that we can all safely take home as a very sound piece of advice is don't eat processed food. If you eat massively processed food, you're exposing yourself to such extreme levels of refined carbohydrates and refined sugars that your human body was never supposed to deal with and never supposed to be able to undertake and certainly not on a daily basis. The amount of carbohydrate we consume per capita in the Western world, I think is clearly, obviously 
never something that nature intended. So think about where you get your carbohydrates from. If you eat complex carbohydrates in the form of lots of vegetables and perhaps not quite so much fruit, if you're trying to lose weight or control diabetes, then that's probably enough. And I think that calorie counting is probably not going to be important if you have healthy food on your plate. And I think there is no argument now about whether or not having a predominantly vegetable-based diet, a plant-based diet, is really, really good for you. We know that the microbiome, that the bacteria and fungi and other creatures that live in your and populate your gut actually need certain foodstuffs in order to be able to survive. And fiber is most definitely one of those foodstuffs. And you can only get that from plant materials. So make sure that 75% of your plate is lots of different colors and plant-based. And then whether or not you choose to add in um, extra carbohydrate or protein in the form of meat or fish, I think that that's often not only a health choice, perhaps it's also a moral choice. Um, I would never argue with anyone who makes the choice to be a meat eater or to be a vegetarian or to be vegan. There's a way of optimizing these diets, however you choose to eat. But you can only do that if you're well informed. So, for example, if you choose to be a meat eater, then perhaps take a look at some of the data on eating meat. It's very, it's very uh, unclear still um, whether or not it's eating large amounts of meats is actually deleterious to your health. There are many in the paleo community, for example, that would argue that there's a huge difference between processed meat that you get from factory farming on your plate and a good healthy portion of meat that perhaps comes from a grass-fed animal that's free range and um, or game or fish or so on and so forth. Again, it's a question of educate yourself and see what you think appeals to you and what seems right to you and go for it. Stay away from the processed foods don't eat massive amounts of meat protein, perhaps. Definitely eat some fish, but watch it's not all um, infiltrated with mercury, as that's also a problem. And just make sure that you eat as many fruit and vegetables as you want. And I honestly think that whilst anybody would agree that organic food is better, it is expensive. And so go for any fruit and vegetables rather than not going for them if at the end of the day, organic is something that you feel that you can't do to uh, go for because of financial reasons. That's completely understandable, but eat more plants. That's the take-home message there. The other aspect of the body, which I think we've touched on in a couple of episodes, and something which has been massively revolutionary to my way of thinking, is where we started to talk about sleep. I think traditionally, we've always viewed somebody who can do with very little sleep as sort of a champion, a bit of a hero, you know, oh, I only need two or three hours or, oh, I don't need, you know, sleep is for softies. You know, people who need a lot of sleep are, are, are just 
not as tough and they're not as committed and, um, you know, they're not as dedicated to whatever they're doing because they need time to sleep. Well, I think that we've busted that myth well and truly. Um, and we are beginning to recognize how vitally important restorative sleep really is. It's hugely important for your psychological well-being. It's clear that our dreams are actually there to help us process information, to record information, to kind of figure out how we emotionally feel about things by putting it in these kind of weird metaphors that we get in dreams so that we can kind of understand what's essential to actually save and keep as valuable predictive information for the future and what we can throw out. Studies have been known for a long, long time that actually um, preventing people from dream sleep actually does cause them to kind of lose their marbles and not slowly either. So we know that that sort of sleep is essential. We also recognize that sleep is essential in order for repair and rest and restoration. But what I certainly did not appreciate is the fact that sleep disorders can actually really inhibit the sleep process so that even if you actually get into bed and go to sleep for eight hours, if you wake up feeling tired, the likelihood is you have a sleep disorder and that something in the way that you sleep is not optimal. Now, we talked about um, the fact that some of these sleep disorders can be really a mechanical issue, which can be very easily fixed and treated by adjusting some features of your dentistry and your face, your cranial uh, physiology, if you like. Dr. Karina Patel talked a lot about that in her episode about uh, pain and sleep disorders potentially being exacerbated and caused by problems with jaw uh, misalignment and also the reverse being true that actually sleep problems can actually lead to problems with your jaw. So that's one factor that we certainly need to look at if somebody is not getting any joy. Like if you know that you grind your teeth or you wake up with tension headaches in the morning because you suddenly realize you've been clenching your teeth all night long. First of all, I'd recommend go see a good therapist and get all of those things you're worried about out of your head and stress manage a lot better. But also you might want to check out whether or not your sleep is actually being disrupted through a misalignment or uh, not using your, your jaw correctly while you sleep. The other massively important factor we learned about sleep was also this vitamin D story from Stasha Gomenak. You know, if you listen to the episode, I love this story. There are seldom incidences where I read something and alarm bells go off in my head because I just think, oh, this just makes so much sense. It's got to be true. And this was one of those stories. And yes, I agree. Although she's done some nominal trials, a lot of the information and evidence that Stasha has is observational from her patients in the clinic. But, you know, before we start getting into all of the arguments of how difficult it is to fund any kind of research into food and nutrition based um, solutions to healthcare, there's there's really no financial gain from that at the end of the day. Um, I also think that her observational studies really do have a role to play and they make a lot of sense. And I have to honestly admit 
that I started substituting with vitamin D myself over a year ago following Stasha's protocol. And I have been a lifetime sufferer of migraine headaches and headaches in general. And I have to say that since I started adjusting my D levels, that I have managed to not have a migraine. And I would actually even go far as to say that I barely had a headache in the last 12 months. And when I look back over over my medical history, I have to say that blows me away because that was something that I really felt was something that I just was never going to get rid of. And it was part of who I was and part of my physiology and my genetic makeup. But clearly, that's not the case. And, you know, I am somebody who has very sensitive skin. So I hate going out in the sun. Um, I love being in the sun. It makes me feel amazing, uh, really lifts my spirits. But I avoid getting too much sun exposure on my skin because I, like everybody else, have grown up with a pathological fear of getting some form of skin cancer and aging, of course, as we know, UV damage is actually aging and would um, only ever sit in the shade if anywhere. So I know for a fact that I've probably been vitamin D deficient for years. Um, and in the interest also of preventing future osteoporosis, although new studies show that vitamin D supplementation doesn't seem to help osteoporosis, I'd argue that it doesn't make much sense to me that it wouldn't. I think it's just one of the many wonderful things that vitamin D does. And as we know, vitamin D itself probably belongs much more in the description of a hormone rather than a vitamin. But I've definitely been vitamin D deficient for years. And I would imagine that most of us who lead modern lifestyles probably are too. When you're exposed to artificial light in an office all day long, I spent four years in an office that didn't even have a a window to the outside world that could be opened. It was a small window which let in the smallest amount of light, nicely filtered through two panes of glass, and the window couldn't be opened. So you couldn't even open it and get pure sunlight in. And in fact, I had one of those lamps on my desk in order to combat seasonal depression because I would find that in the winter, these kind of like not being able to actually get sunlight into my eyes was really affecting my mood. So more than just the vitamin D production, it's very definitely something to do with mood. But going back to the sleep story, if we remember what Stasha Gomenat was talking about, and it is a complicated story, so please go back and listen to the episode. Um, we know that if you optimize your vitamin D levels, you optimize sleep. And if you optimize sleep, you optimize rest and repair. And the body has to repair. It is the most amazing uh, instrument of self-repair. It's a self-repairing organizing system. You just have to put it in the right position to be able to do that. And if your body is literally coping with absolute um, code red type of emergencies every night, and it's only just being able to deal with these emergencies, and it doesn't have the time, and it doesn't have the resources to go back and do this kind of basic maintenance repair that is essential, then we can understand why our bodies start to break down fairly quickly. So that makes an enormous amount of sense to me. 
and something which I think that we really should think about and explore and try it out. Um, you know, the kind of levels of vitamin D that you need to get the serum levels that Dr. Gomenak was talking about as being essential to put you in this optimal sleep phase certainly are not the kind of vitamin D levels where you could get any kind of toxic side effects. But if you have any concerns, go talk to your doctor, share this information with them. Perhaps, you know, you might actually educate and enlighten them. And if you choose to go down the road yourself, please contact Dr. Gomina or look at her website. There's loads of information there for you to do that. But I would recommend it because it certainly made a difference to my life. Now, imagine it would very easily make a difference to a lot of other people's too. Part of the story with Dr. Gomenak was also the fact that the repair needs building blocks. And some of these building blocks are B vitamins. And our B vitamins, we know, are partially produced from our gut bacteria. And so you do need to supplement with vitamin B for a while until you get your own gut bacteria back to a place where they can start manufacturing these chemicals that you need. And in fact, the whole area of the microbiome is something that we really haven't explored as yet in the podcast, but something that I'm very definitely going to go in into the future. Whether it's the microbiome in our gut, whether it's the microbiome in our skin or elsewhere, there's a microbiome pretty much everywhere. And we're beginning to realize how vitally important these things are. It's a massive feedback mechanism. When we go back to this idea of mind, body, spirit medicine, begs the question, whose body are we talking about? Because from an actual DNA point of view, if you were to measure the amount of DNA that's in your body and you apportion that to human DNA and the amount of DNA that is coming from all of these bacteria that you have with you and some of those basic um, coding even that's in your own DNA, fact of the matter is they pretty much outnumber us, you know, like 90%. To 10. I mean, it's astounding. We are basically walking symbiotic factories of all of these other things that live with us. And we're going to, in the future, I think, really become to appreciate how incredibly important this is. And this again gets back to this story of don't get away too far from living the way that nature intended. Nature intended for us to have dirty hands occasionally and take in a few healthy bacteria with our food that isn't overly sterilized. You know, nature intended for us to eat in a way that actually supports our microbiome. We know for a fact that if you have the wrong kind of bacteria, that they can actually send messages to you that influence the way that you think so that you have appetite for sugar and bad things rather than healthy things. Isn't that extraordinary? And that gets back again to the mind, you know, so the mind can be influenced by our gut bacteria as well as ourselves and our environment and our programming. It's a complicated story, but we see how all of these puzzle pieces really start to fit. And perhaps the last thing I really want to talk about today is spirit. And spirit is so important. When we talk about stress and our stress response to the world, everybody in the Western world is stressed. And we just don't realize how stressed we are. And even if you are aware of it, trying to combat it is not easy. 
You know, again, the stress response was something that was set up in order to help us survive. That is the prime directive, excuse the Star Trek reference, um, to everything that we're about. You know, nature wants us as individuals to survive. Stage one, to at least survive long enough to procreate. And even though this is argued, I would even argue stage two, that we become an elder and actually a really useful member for our societies to make our societies thrive and survive in the future. So many cultures have often really respected their elders and very much integrated their knowledge and their experience in to help educate the young. When in tribal societies, when young men or even young women go through their initiations into adulthood, they're almost always overlooked and overseen by an elder member of the society, a grandmother or a grandfather type. So let's not throw away our benefits and use that we have to society as we go into eldership. It's actually hugely important and hugely valid and very important that we stay healthy. Otherwise, all of that knowledge gets lost. If we all die of awful chronic diseases or cannot tell these stories and cannot actually give our experience on because our brains are adult with neurodegenerative disease and we can't remember things, then we lose the most enormous resource to our society. And I'm not just saying that because I'm getting to that age myself. But as my dear mother said, who sadly passed away this year at the age of 91, I think I might be getting old, but only getting. So, Back to the story of staying in good space and avoiding stress and decay to our well-being. Stress is a great disruptor. There are many schools of thought now that are completely convinced that a fundamental source of all disease is inflammation. And inflammation is most definitely exacerbated by stress. Now, we can reduce inflammation through lots of different ways. And one of the main ways of doing that is managing stress. Of course, another way, before I forget, is to get out and ground. So you might recall our interview with John Craig, all about earthing and about how to get all of those electrons back into your body so that they can help fight inflammation on the ground, as it were with the troops, with the cells and inside the cells and with the biochemistry. Another good way of actually dealing with inflammation is to reduce stress because stress chemicals are not good for the body. Now, you can argue and say cortisol is a stress chemical and that's given as an anti-inflammatory. And that's true. But we all know that when you take something like a steroid cortisone and it suppresses inflammation, the minute that you take it away, it comes back with a vengeance because your body gets used to it and you have to increase the amounts. You get a sort of a plateau. And the same thing happens when you're under stress all of the time. So although your stress hormones may actually in the short term be anti-inflammatory, long term, they shut down your immune system. If you think about what the first thing is that happens to a patient who goes to, for an organ transplant, 
is that they're given massive amounts of corticosteroids, cortisol-like compounds, in order to depress their immune system so they won't reject the organ. And yet we're producing this cortisol ourselves in bucketsful full every single day, simply because we allow ourselves to constantly be in this fight or flight mode. The thing is, we're not responding to the saber-toothed tiger or the bear or the lightning or whatever, whatever, or the plague of locusts or whatever it was that we had to deal with as hunter-gatherers in ancient societies. These days, we use the same response when we're dealing with road rage or the fact that the mortgage needs to be paid or the kids forgot their homework or you know, little Johnny is sick and you have to take time off work, but you don't have any sick days left. All of these sorts of things put us into this constant state of stress. And that's just not healthy. No organism is supposed to endure a constant state of stress. It's It will just burn your circuits. I think that makes logical sense to anybody. So what are good ways of combating stress? Well, goes back to what we were doing we were talking about before it's a mind body spirit exercise in this instance i think perhaps it is predominantly a spirit exercise i find that people who have spiritual practices that have a spiritual quality to their lives that perhaps understand and recognize that they're not alone on this world but they're all part of a bigger picture that they feel connected to the whole to the something bigger than themselves, that that is actually a great way to combat stress because it massively reduces your anxieties about your future. Also, spiritual practices have real physiological effects on our minds and our brains. If you look at physical practices and meditation and other spiritual practices such as things like this, They've been proven with brain scans to actually have very profound effects on the brain, which have been proven to be beneficial. And anybody who undergoes or undertakes a meditative practice on a daily basis will come back and tell you that within a very short period of time, they notice that if nothing else, that they're just not as easily, uh, what's the word? irritated perhaps as they were before that your response time from zero to 100 is reduced that perhaps it's zero to 25 and even if you hit 100 you come back down from 100 much more quickly that things that would irritate you in the past now just seem much less important that needing to be right in an argument suddenly becomes really rather unimportant that a meditative practice just helps you deal with the stress of daily life. Looking at the body, we know that one of the most effective ways to deal with stress is, again, exercise. Get out and walk, be in nature, move your body. That's a great way to actually deal with stress and exercise. And it's also anti-inflammatory. The same is true of food. You know, there are some foods that cause stress to the body. Um, again, sometimes this is a question of ethnicity and culture, what you're used to. 
So somebody, for example, who's not used to eating an incredibly spicy meal may actually experience that as a physical stress. Um, Other people find it quite a normal thing. But a healthy diet will definitely put you in a position where you can maximize your resistance to stress and where you can definitely put your body in a position where it can reduce or limit the amount of inflammation. And of course, the mind aspect is a massively important component of stress because a lot of stress that we experience, we fabricate. We fabricate in our minds. A lot of stress is wrapped up in anxiety and anxiety is worrying about the future. It's actually another one of these protection mechanisms that was set up in order to make us survive. And it's brilliant at doing that. It says, this is a potentially new situation that could be dangerous. Go back, review everything that you've ever experienced and see what we can use from all of that evidence to predict the outcome of this future. In fact, let's take it one step further and predict the worst possible outcome. Because if you survive that, you'll survive anything else. So we're all running around with this mechanism that was there for our survival. But it actually gives us a terrible negativity bias. We're always worrying about all the things that can go wrong. And in fact, we're always worrying about the worst things that can go wrong. About a year ago, I actually made the decision to not worry anymore. I just decided I wasn't going to do it. There was a part of me that realized that in actual fact, I'd spent years of my life very much partly culturally influenced. I come from a Mediterranean background and worrying is in our genes. But I grew up understanding that you worried about things, that that's just the way it was. You worried about everybody and everything around you. And at some point in time, worrying also began to be a little bit equated with caring, that if you didn't worry about someone, it meant you didn't care about them. Now, one day I suddenly thought, but wait a minute, you know, I can't worry in advance. It's not like a bank account that if I put all of this worry into this bank account, that at some point I can then go to that and draw on it and prevent this bad thing happening. It's like, I've worried in advance and that's going to stop this bad thing happening. Well, we all know just doesn't work that way. Quite the contrary, in fact. The more time and energy you spend focusing on these bad things happening, the more likely there are actually to occur. And the truth is that bad things don't happen that often. Of course, there's always going to be a traumatic event and nobody goes through life without something bad happening at some point. But in most cases, something bad doesn't happen. So I decided to stop worrying. And it doesn't mean that I don't care. I care about the people in my life, for example, more than I care about most things. And yet, worrying about them actually doesn't even help them. Because the irony of it is, if you worry about another person, especially a young person, a child, actually what you're telling them, the message you're giving them is, I don't trust you to look after yourself. That's not a very empowering message. So I don't worry. I've chosen not to worry. I assume everything's going to be fine. And if something does go wrong, I'll just deal with it when it happens. And I must say, that's just cleared out 
so much space in my head that I feel much calmer and much more relaxed and much less stressed since I decided to adopt that attitude. So my dear listeners, I've been rattling on here about my ideas, my observations, my take-home messages from some of the people that we've been listening to, and this growing idea that I have of a unified theory of health, which I really, really believe in. I think it is an active process, and I think it is something that we have to choose to want to do because it doesn't happen by itself in our modern day and age and the way that we live. I think that you have to take care of your mind. And in fact, I think everybody at some point should go to a therapist. It should literally come with mother's milk. And maybe a day will come where some of these basic messages of being enough and how to empower yourself and how to acquire self-esteem and confidence and not be such a tumbleweed that you're absolutely at the mercy of everybody's opinion and what everybody wants from you. If you can get your mind into a good place, if you can deal with trauma, if you can deal with things that happen to you, if you can strengthen your resilience to life itself, then I think you put yourself in an optimal position for living healthy for longer. However, of course, as much as your mind is probably the primary thing that you've got to look after, you do have to look after your body. And some would say your spirit just as much. Perhaps these things are actually on an equal footing. I think perhaps that's the case. So look after your body, exercise it, feed it, feed it well, feed it predominantly with plants and feed it with healthy food and not junk Stay away from that processed stuff. As they say, if you've got to unpack it and if it comes in cellophane, it's probably not worth eating. So eat well and sleep well. Look after your sleep. Make sure that you take the time every day to actually sleep. This is not something that you can economize on because the studies are overwhelming about how performance goes out of the window. In fact, your ability to drive a car is massively reduced when you're tired, even more so than if you'd been drinking alcohol. So think about that. Think about how many people get killed every year on the road due to somebody falling asleep at the wheel. Honor yourself and let yourself sleep. And if you're not sleeping and you're waking up feeling that you're not rested or if you know that you have pains and neurological problems or other issues, then think about the fact that maybe your sleep quality is not as good as it could be. And look at other avenues to see if you can optimize that. Go for a sleep study, talk to your doctor, check your vitamin D levels, and perhaps even go visit someone like Karina Patel, a dentist specializing in looking at craniofacial pain. So many things that we can do to optimize our health. And the last one, of course, is spirit. Find a meditative practice. I know meditation isn't for everyone, although I really believe that 
everybody can meditate. It's just a question of finding a method that works for you. From mindfulness through Vedic meditation that we've talked about, we're going to talk about a lot more things in the future. Other methodologies, some people prefer some kind of guided imagery. Whatever works for you, find a little bit of opportunity, time and space to give yourself a little respite from the noise, turn down the noise. And if you look after mind, body, and spirit, then you are looking towards a future where you really can think about enjoying optimal health and optimal longevity. So, dear listeners, that was my little resume of the last six months. I hope that you enjoyed that. I'm sure I didn't cover everything and everybody. It was completely impossible. But maybe some of the key points and some of the key ideas that we have learned about and are certainly going to pick apart and investigate a lot more closely in the future. In order to be able to do that, dear listeners, this is where I have to ask you to help me. Because in order to get high-profile guests, the long and the short of it is they will only come when they feel that it's worth their while because we have a large listenership to offer them. And that's completely understandable. These are wonderful people with very busy lives and very crazy schedules. And we'd love to get them on. So help me by helping to get the word out there, grow our listenership, Grow the number of people who are subscribing to the podcast. Tell all your friends, tell your clients if you're a therapist, and tell anybody that you think may benefit from the messages that we're bringing you here. Because we can't help you empower yourself to take back control of your health care unless we can help you find out what's right for you. So help me to bring you the best guest possible. And we have some great guests lined up for the future, as well as the wonderful guests that we've already had in the past. So please rate, review us on iTunes, support our Facebook page, come and like it, see us on any other of our channels, all under London Heal, Instagram, LinkedIn, all of those things. And also come and join our Facebook group, which I promise will be live soon. Don't forget, I'm wearing all of the hats at once from a couple of people that I have on my team to help me with a few technical issues and other things. So my resources are limited and I do the best I can. But I promise the Facebook group is coming very, very soon. And I'm very excited because I think that's going to be a great place to have really good interactive discussions and find out more about what's central to you, what's important to you. So I hope you enjoyed my little resume. I hope you enjoy London Heal. And I hope that we'll be seeing you here again in our next episode. And until then, it leaves me just to wish you, as always, health, happiness, and serenity. <laughs>